Hello, hello, boys and girls. This is Startup Hand Me Downs, the podcast that brings insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm Ranbir, and today me and Phil have a very special guest in Matt Lerner, having travelled the world, managed growth teams at PayPal, and now leading the London branch of VC funder and accelerator 500 startups. Matt is a powerhouse on the London tech scene. In this episode, we discuss the secrets to becoming a great manager. What's a more effective way to guide your business by human feeling or by numbers? And the types of people he invests in. So let's jump straight into the action, guys. Thanks for coming down, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. Great to have you on. Um, so I guess jumping straight in, when people ask you at a dinner party, what do you do? What do you say to them? <laughs> um, they don't ask me that nearly as much in the UK. It's always the first question when you meet someone in the US. Hi, what do you do? Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of refreshing that Europeans actually have other things to talk about from time to time. Um, but I, I usually say I'm an investor, uh, a VC. Okay. Cool. Nice, nice and clean. Um, so, so give us a little background. In about four bullet points, uh, can you tell us what you did after graduating with a degree in computers and communication uh, to get to where you are now? Hmm. In four bullet points. Four bullet points. <laughs> uh, I managed to convince somebody to hire me. Um, yeah, in marketing. It was my first job. Mm-hmm. Um, worked for a number of startups, building you know marketing teams. Um, took some time off, traveled around the world, which was great fun. I'm not sure that necessarily got me here, um, but it was definitely worth doing. Um, joined PayPal about 10 years ago. Um, and as they grew, I built and ran a series of growth teams. Um, yeah, and left PayPal uh, just under a year ago. Uh, to join 500 startups and set up their London operation. Very cool. You actually managed it in, in about four or five bullet points there. Okay. <laughs> not, not a lot of people managed to do. Follow simple instructions. Yeah, yeah. No, good. So where did you travel to? And you know, whilst you were traveling, how did that help you to decide what you were going to do next? Like, were you always thinking, I'm going to go to PayPal when I get back? Or like, how did those, like, were you enlightened on your travels, basically? Yeah, I was. Um, you know, I was, you typical American. I was 28 years old. I didn't even have a passport, um, you know. And so I said, "All right, well, I, I can do this now. So why not? You know, I'll be able to get a job when I get back." So, but I uh, went to about 36 countries. I started traveling around Asia. Um, then I went to Africa. I flew to Cape Town and made my way up to Cairo. Uh, and then I went to Europe last because I knew I only had a finite amount of money. And if I went to Europe first, it would all disappear very yeah. quickly. <laughs> Um, and I do remember, like, talk about first world problems to have. By the end, I was bored. I mean, I've been traveling for the better part of 18 months. Mm. And I remember waking up in a youth hostel in Florence, Italy, and thinking, oh, no, not, not another museum full of Botticelli's, not another Gothic cathedral, you know, Rococo murals. This is, this mm. is getting bored. I want to go do something. <laughs> I want to use my brain. So yeah. great problems to have. Mm. So I guess what that showed me is no matter how much money I could ever make in my life, I'm not going to want to just sit on my butt and go to museums and travel all day because mm. it, it gets old. I'm going to want to be doing something useful and using my mind and, and being engaging. So then when I came back, you know, I, I took a pretty systematic approach to try to figure out what I wanted to do and I made a, a grid of all the possible jobs and all my criteria and scored them and everything. But And, and they actually decided I should be a power forward in the NBA. <laughs> I, I want Kevin Garnett's job, but um, 
They're laughing because I'm five foot seven. I'm 170 centimeters tall. That's not what we're laughing. And I weigh the, the better part of 150 pounds. Um, so it's just not realistic. But that was definitely the highest rated job, both in terms of salary and amusement sure. and everything. <laughs> sure, it was. Uh, but I guess what I concluded when I came back was I wanted to do something fun and interesting because I, no matter what, I'm going to want to work, so I might as well be learning from it and doing something engaging. Sure. Uh, so yeah, reconnected. I didn't really specifically have PayPal in mind, but I just started networking through friends and I got to Dave McClure, uh, who was running developer relations on you know a growth team at PayPal at the time, and he and I got to talking and we just got on really well. Um, immediately and I thought okay this is a guy I want to come work for I could learn a lot from him mm. uh, the stuff they're doing is really cool nobody else is thinking about marketing like this um, you know that I could do this well and this would be great fun so that's why I ended up joining PayPal and did you learn anything from your travels that you think have really made a difference in the life that later part of your life um, I mean it's almost it's hard to talk about what you learned it's like that scene from the matrix where you know, Morpheus says, okay, you can take the red pill or the green pill, but, mm. you know, once you've seen these things, you can't unsee them. I mean, when you, you know, just grew up, you know, in a suburb in the United States your whole life, and then, you know, talking to you guys, you don't live in the U.S., so you, you've <laughs> traveled probably more. But, you know, when you get out and, and go to Bangladesh and, you know, Ethiopia, you, your entire perspective on life changes. I mean, it's just an entire everything you know this is I've met people I couldn't have had conversations with them before I traveled because we would have nothing to talk about mm, I couldn't yeah. relate to their experiences mm. um, so just being I guess so much wiser from having done that and all the people I would meet and just you know you land in the country you don't speak the language and yet you've got to get food and shelter you know there's some mix of charm and pantomime and just you know <laughs> having to BS your way through that stuff mm-hmm. um, was a, a really good experience for me and then just purely from a business angle just understanding how big the world is, yeah. seeing you know the, how growth was happening, you know, in a lot of the emerging markets in Asia, for example, um, you know, just put everything into perspective and it makes you realize, you know, how relatively small my world back in the U.S. was, mm-hmm. uh, and just how much amazing stuff is happening outside of it. So it's hard to summarize, but yeah. it just changes your perspective so much. Yeah, I could definitely see that. A lot of entrepreneurs uh, go out and um, I think after their travels, they usually find a found a business. I think it's got something to do with um, seeing that there's much more to life than the rat race. I think it's coming from that. Probably, yeah. Right, um, so when we were researching you, it seems that every single person <laughs> ever to have met you raves about how good you were of a leader to them. Um, so we want to see how the foundations of that got put into place. So either from your travels or the early parts of, of your career, can you talk us through um, how you went about developing your leadership ability um, as you had to manage more and more people? Hmm. It's a, I, I wish I could just kind of roll up a simple treatise on it, but it's just sort of something that's happened over the years. But I'll give a few thoughts. First, I think it's important to distinguish uh, between the words management and leadership. Mm. I think you're using them interchangeably and they're very different things. Mm-hmm. So by management, when I think of management, I mean specifically that you have people in your charge and you're looking after them as part of a team and helping them and that team be successful. And mm-hmm. you know, managing people really well is an important skill. There's a lot of great leaders who are terrible at managing people, mm. famous people. like. Well, frankly, Steve Jobs. Yeah. You know, it was a visionary and a brilliant leader, but you know, day to day, not such a nice guy always. Mm-hmm. Um, and then leadership for me is 
different. It's a vision of a better future. It's, it's a vision of the world as it could be that you're really drawn to. And a power, the power of a great leader is they can make that vision real in people's minds mm -hmm. and, and get those people to work towards making that a reality. Um, and so I think those are really different things. And I think most of what you see on the internet about me is probably more on the, the management side. I mean, over the years, especially when I was at PayPal, I had the privilege of hiring and managing a lot of people. And I learned a lot just through trial and error, because uh, I think that's kind of the only way to get experience, you know, to get become a really good people manager, mm. uh, was just to do it and learn from your mistakes. And I got, had also the good fortune to get to go to some different leadership training courses. But I think ultimately kind of the fundamental insight around managing people, there's a few things I learned that I think are most powerful. If I could go back in time, mm. you know, and tell myself these things. One is people are who they are. Generally, I mean, there are people who are very focused on self-improvement and they're always trying to learn at some incremental rate. Yeah. But if someone comes in and they're just not interested in talking to other people and they're, you know, a very good coder but not particularly social, like they're never going to fundamentally change that inclination. They might make a good effort to become a people person and have like an outward-facing role, but if it's not what they love, hmm. it's always going to be a struggle for them. Yeah. So better to hire extraordinary people with skills and craft a job that's in line with their passions mm. than to try to take someone and say, oh, you have these weaknesses, you have to do these things better so you can fit into this mm. box. So I think, you know, number one, biggest hack of all is just hire amazing people mm. in the first place. Easy to say, difficult to do. Um, but you'll know amazing people because they'll impress you and you'll feel humble and you're feeling, wow, I should probably be working for you, but yeah. by some <laughs> quirk of fate, you're sitting on that side of the table and I hope I can get you to come work for me yeah. and I hope I can make it a good use of your time. Yeah. So hiring great people is is huge leverage. I mean, as an investor, I always look at founders and their ability to attract and engage and, and excite other talented people because that's a way to just massively grow at scale. You know, when someone like Mark Zuckerberg can hire someone like Sheryl Sandberg, mm -hmm. it says more about Mark Zuckerberg, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one is just hire amazing people. Two is let them be who they are. If you've got to change the job or even the focus of the business a little bit, just to create space where they can really sprint and yeah. love it, it's better to do that than to try to change those people. And then as a leader, I mean, you've got to decide to commit to their success in the way that that they define success. I think one mistake I made earlier was I assumed that my definitions of success and my personal goals were the same goals as everybody else. Yes. You know, and I, I managed one person who's an incredibly productive employee and just said, okay, well, you know, I'm a single parent, I've got three kids, I need to get home every day at five, and my definition of success is to do a good job and still be able to have my personal life. And that mm. person was an incredibly effective employee. Mm. You know, I had a person on the same team whose goal was to become a chief marketing officer within 10 years, incredibly ambitious, um, you know, working days and nights, fine. So I want to help each of you achieve those goals because that's what matters to you. Mm. And you know, neither of those would have been my personal goal. And that's fine. And if you're helping a person achieve their goals, you know, they're going to be feeling like they're making progress towards those goals, they're going to be engaged and working hard and, and doing their best. Um, you know, of course you do get into situations where someone's goals, someone's skills are just completely incompatible with where you need to take the organization. And then, I mean, it's important to have that, call that out and have that conversation honestly, early. 
Um, so I think when it's not a fit, you know, people know it, and it gets awkward and uncomfortable, and you know, weird behaviors start to happen. So mm -hmm. I, I try to have that conversation early and say, look, it seems to me like you don't like these parts of the job. You're really drawn to these parts, but you know, right now we don't need those. Let's think about how do we handle this. Mm -hmm. You know, do we? Is there a way we can change the job? Am I missing something? You know, is it time for you to look for another job? And if so, how can I help? And just sort of call those things out and address them early and directly with people. Mm -hmm. So you you obviously before you left PayPal, you were director of marketing. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I was. Well, I was sort of general manager of the small and medium business segment in the UK before that, marketing director. So you must have had a lot of people to manage. Could you tell us about a difficult time you faced at that PayPal of managing a, like a, a scenario and how did you mm. kind of overcome that? Give me a minute to think about this. Yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, Do you want to come back to it? Leave it rustling in the background there? <laughs> Probably best. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's see if something pops up. Right. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so on your LinkedIn page, it says your approach is very quantitative um, and rooted into deep customer insights and testing. So based on uh, based on fast iterations. So can you just explain that to us in a bit more detail? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in, in the simplest terms, you know, it, it just means you measure what you do and you get what you measure. So if you're trying to, to grow a business and get more customers, um, you need to figure out what is the key metric that we need to focus on. So you know, before this interview, we were just talking about a mobile app. You know, and the question is, are you looking at total downloads or should you look at you know total active users, or is it daily actives or multi-day actives or weekly or monthly um, or revenue? You know, and, and you can't optimize for all those things. So you need to pick one metric that is really kind of at the right altitude to where it directly reflects the impact of the work you're trying to do every day to grow the business. Mm. Often revenue could be a, you know, a few steps removed, mm -hmm. so it maybe it's too distant a goal to focus on in the short term, uh, where something like views or impressions or downloads isn't, you know, you don't make money if someone downloads an app, so you need to sometimes move a bit further down the funnel. Um, so basically, you, you pick your metric and then each of the different pieces of, of marketing or whatever you're using to try to drive growth, you want to measure the impact on a regular basis of that work on the metric. Sure. Uh, and ideally, that's going to be in some sort of test and control, experiment-driven situation, you know, where you've got your audience randomly segmented into different groups and some of them are getting different test variants and some of them are getting the classic earlier version. So you can actually measure the lift of those test groups and figure out that the impact you're seeing is caused by the work you're doing, not by some seasonal factor or some something else. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no, that's very, very good. Yeah. Um, so when we uh, first met you, we were at um, at an event, and um, it was quite a kind of funny incident how we met. So uh, the three of us, me, Phil, and another friend, were talking about uh, instinct and uh, instinct versus um, data. versus data-driven uh, decision making. And uh, that's when you popped into the convo to uh, yeah to to give your views. Um, so I did actually find uh, your conclusion very interesting. Do you remember it? And uh, can you talk us through it? Uh, refresh my memory okay. <laughs> on my conclusion, because actually my, I've been giving this a lot of thought lately, um, and so my opinions may have migrated. Did, did we, did we, we trigger that? Ago. Did we trigger you to think about um, it? It's different. I had, so we ran a program in the last month, I had the absolute pleasure of working with a gentleman named Matt Braddy, and he was the uh, CMO of Just Eat, who okay. took it from Series A through their IPO. It's one of the most 
gifted marketers of you know in the UK. You know, he, in yeah, he's just an extraordinarily gifted marketer. He's one of those people you talked about. He's just got magical instincts. And I've been working with him on his latest startup. And so we we did get into a, kind of a lot of discussions about you know do you sort of segment everything into little pieces and analyze it, you know. Or do you just go in a room and think really hard and come up with the right answers? But what was my answer before, and then I'll tell you where I met it up. So your answer was that the first stage of it requires the human insight and the human touch. So um, the way I picture it in my head is uh, it's uh, it's like a bull, um, mm-hmm. and the bull the, the first step of getting the bull far is to throw it as far as you can, and once it's fallen, then it starts to roll, and that's that's how you get it to where you want it to go. So in those two respective segments, the throwing part is the human insight. That can get you a very far way along the line. And then after you've thrown it to get the ball to go the distance, that's the quantitative and data-driven part. So you measure and you optimize and you drive it down the road. So uh, I think that was the conclusion we came to. Or uh, has your mind ch- changed since then? Uh, where you are now? Good analogy. That one. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess at the high level, my, my conclusion is the same, which is that uh, it's equal parts both. And the key is to understand which bits of the problem require which tools. I think any good marketing starts with, I mean, you kept saying the word insights with understanding your customers, understanding their problems, and how your product or service fits into their life and makes it better. And to be able to, to articulate that in, in their language and really understand it from the outside in, which is step zero and actually remarkably difficult and a step that a lot of startups just completely bungle. Mm. And it's relatively easy, but you do have to go talk to them. Um, then the next phase, which I think is, is kind of driven by can be really aided by instincts and creativity is that hypothesis generation phase. So taking you know maybe what's a little pain that somebody feels and turning it into a super obvious, compelling message, uh, a product experience that that's tangible and brings that into stark relief for them. Um, so that sort of creative session, I think that's what Matt and I talked. And I think if you've got someone like Matt Braddy available who can help you do that, you're very lucky. But people like that are rare. Mm. Um, but doing a decent job without a super genius is better than not doing anything at all. And then that gets you as far as it gets you. And then you come in quantitatively, you can start to try different versions and refine them um, and get a whole lot further. So one good example, Tim Ferriss talks about uh, the four-hour work week. Mm-hmm. So the way he chose the title for the book, he had a bunch of other titles and they had yes. to do with trafficking, drugs and things. Yeah. <laughs> and so he just one day brainstormed a five or ten of them. He didn't know which ones were good or bad, so he just bought, started buying Google AdWords and advertising each of these titles as books, and the, the title of the four-hour work week won the test. Mm. So that was, a you know, Tim's wonderful with a lot of things. He's probably not, you know, the, the next uh, great creative, you know, advertising genius, yeah. um, but he was able to come up with some decent things and then test them and hit on a real winner that way. I think there's another link to that story as well. So I think it was initially it was going to be called like, uh, so the publishers wanted it to be called like 16 hour work week or something, just to be yeah. a bit more accurate. Then Tim goes, you know, you know, forget about 16, that's not attractive enough. We need to make it really, really low. So that, that's where four came from. <laughs> One was so low it was silly. <laughs> exactly. the, the, the Eleven was a prime number. That's not going to get any clicks. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. So I think, yeah, there's definitely an interplay for both. But ultimately, unless you've got an absolute creative visionary whose just instincts are spot on every time, you know, there's no getting away from the need to iterate and measure and refine.
So what make, can you give an example of what makes uh, Matt Brady? Is that Brady? Yeah. Matt, uh, is he American or English? He's English. Yeah. Okay, because we, we we call it Brady. Okay. Yeah, I remember Brady. Yeah. Uh, it sounded like he was saying Brady, but he oh, might okay. Be Brady. Uh, I'll have to correct him as well. B R A D D Y. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. So, can you give an example of what makes him so good at marketing, or something he's done which uh, you think is is really genius? Well, I mean, he took us through his whole experience uh, when he was at Just Eat, and. I'll try to do it justice, but uh, the truth is he, he's probably blogged about it and he gives talks and if you can hear it in person, uh, it would be a really good way to spend an hour of your life if you get the chance. Scam on the show. Yeah, I can make an intro. Um, but basically, you know, they have this idea, it's a food delivery service, and it's like, okay, well, there's lots of food delivery services, you know, and everybody's ordering pizza, and how do we, what, what's going on in people's heads when they're ordering food that isn't just, oh, that looks delicious? Like, how do you get a step beyond that and do something a little different and interesting? And so that he just, him and his leadership team, that just sounds like they went off-site for four days and thought this through, you know, what's in the minds of the customers. And ultimately, they came to the conclusion that it's just, most people just can't be bothered. Like, they want a kebab or something, and they, they don't want to be, they don't want to cook, they don't want to clean, they don't want to go to the grocery store. And it was like, cooking sucks. You know, and that was the top of their brand pyramid, was cooking sucks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cooking sucks, just eat. And that got them to just eat. Mm. So that was their sort of emotional resonance of like, okay, look, you could just have food without all that other stuff you don't like. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was just a question of building out, you know, the ad creative to really get that and reinforce it everywhere. So, I mean, it started with putting stickers, you know, on all the restaurants that delivered yes. that way which the restaurants found would, would bring them more customers and you know here's like an accolade we can put on the front you know Just Eat delivers our food so it must not be poison uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. um, then they started you know selling the pizza boxes to the restaurants and all these other things eventually they sponsored a candidate for like town council or something and did a publicity mm. stunt where they got the guy a jetpack and had him fly away and genius it was just all it was kind of silly over the top stuff once you had that core anchor of like cooking socks just eat you know then what can we do around that just to get attention to that message and get a lot of free publicity because we're not going to outspend domino's pizza in a million years mm. you know so how can we tell the story in a way that it gets legs and a guy flying running you know a guy dressed in a chef's hat with a crazy mustache running for town council um you know that gets news coverage when he flies away in a jetpack it gets news coverage so mm. um just kind of brainstorming it. and then his other message was just take it over the top and, and, and be ridiculous about it mm -hmm. so. so the what i'm hearing is what matt was really really good at was finding the human element in in, in what would make just eat unique and what it would um kind of the cord it would string in, in a person's emotions and then coming up with cool ideas to amplify that and just blast it out. But the most important find is to find what is really... The pain point. Uh, the yeah, the, the pain point and I think emotion is a, is, a, is a key part for me there. So what as a human, what do you like to do the most? And it's uh, from that old sector, it's eating. Um, so yeah, something that really, trans, uh, really hits the cord with the customer. I agree, and I guess if I'm going to relate this to startups, yeah. the thing that jumps out, the mistake I see most often is, you know, people tend, bright people, founders tend to look for patterns in data, and they tend to zoom out to a level of abstraction because there's some power in that. 
But in a marketing message, often specific and concrete works a lot better. Mm. So if you look at, you know, CRM software websites, they all say things like, you know, automate your sales force, improve efficiency, save money. Yeah. And these are very abstract concepts. Yeah. Whereas cooking sucks, just eat. You know, and the, option, the idea of scrubbing off a frying pan, I mean, that's very tangible day to day. Mm. As opposed to more convenient meals. What is that? Yeah, right? what I mean, I can't eat that. Yeah, <laughs> I can't eat convenient. Like, what's the difference? What are you talking about? <laughs> so I think zooming back in from sort of fundraising or investor pitch deck writing or business strategy writing to the real tangible, concrete details of people's day-to-day experiences. I'm just going to stop typing the same email addresses every time. Or, um, so getting really specific and tangible about what that customer pain is, and resisting the temptation to sort of zoom out and make it into a broad category mm-hmm. of that's frankly probably meaningless. Good to hear you say that. I actually wrote a blog post uh, a while back on um, on why uh, guys in tech are artists, and um, it was actually a, a debate going in my head for a, for a long time because uh, I always considered, um, uh, especially the, like the early versions of the iPods, uh, to be works of art. And I thought, why? And um, it comes down to I think uh, for me the definition of, of art is it has to be a piece of work that represents. Uh, the artist's self, so their, their own vision of themselves. It has to have a piece of them uh, represented in their work. And um, I think what makes um, great tech art for me is that there's a strong human element in it. Uh, the tech that I feel is art is wouldn't be art if it didn't have, if it didn't, didn't string a chord in, in the user. And to get to string that chord in the user, the, the person who makes it has to go within themselves and kind of put that part of themselves in, into the product. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll forward it on to you so you can get your thoughts on that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. I agree. I mean, really successful products, even B2B, even enterprise software, they resonate with people at an emotional level. Yeah. And maybe this is just because I'm weird, but opening Google Analytics or Site Catalyst and just seeing a week's worth of data resonates with me. <laughs> you just engineered that way, I guess. In a, an emotional level. Yeah. Uh, so, so moving forward, so we talked about you know traveling, PayPal. You're now at 500 startups, which is the biggest accelerator fund in the world, maybe. Possibly. Possibly. Certainly on Possibly, the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're over in London. Yeah. Making bets. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's that going? <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. Um, I love it. So I guess to, a little background on 500s um, size. I guess it depends how you men- measure it, whether it's sort of assets under management. But mm-hmm. we've got about 1,500 investments we've done worldwide um, and about $200 million in assets under management globally uh, with people on the ground in, I think, 20 countries now. We speak 40 languages. We've invested in companies in probably more than 40 countries at this point. So certainly in terms of number of investments and global reach, if we're not the largest, we're, we're very close to it. So, um, London, it's a fantastic tech scene. Um, you've got this real influx of talent. You know, we talked earlier, there's great universities around London. Uh, a lot of the best and brightest talent from all around Europe are coming here. Uh, and the ecosystem's really developing. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of good, smart money, a lot of really experienced investors. Mm. Um, available, so kind of all the raw ingredients to make a thriving startup ecosystem. 
Uh, and there's even kind of a big cultural shift towards startups. You know, we were just talking about how there's TV shows. You know, it's kind of a celebrity thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Founder and an entrepreneur now. And in, in the old days, our parents probably would have wanted us to do something more respectable. Uh, they they um, still do. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, believe me. Does it, does it listen to this? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, Phil calls me every day uh, saying, I remember I don't want to go home. My mom's going to be on my case. <laughs> so, Get a job. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a terrific scene. And I'm really glad to be here. And I've been super impressed with everybody I've met. Good. And in terms of the, the startups that you're kind of investing, what is your criteria? So I think that'd be quite useful for the audience. Like sure. what is it that you're looking for? So I guess I should say I'm wearing two hats. And the one hand I'm just, you know, generally uh, in it, uh, a partner of 500 startups and I'm always looking for deals across the board uh, that I can refer back for possible investment. Typically, we're going to invest what we would consider accelerator stage is actually a, a bit later here in the UK. We're looking for companies who've got traction. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, typically if it's something that's going to make revenue, then paying customers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a decent number of them. Uh, if it's something like social media or, you know, a game or something, then we're still looking for a pretty significant number of monthly active users to show that people really like the product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's sort of 500 startups generally. And then I run a program here specifically in London that helps companies scale their growth. So I'm working with post-seed, pre-series A companies, and it's a three-month intensive program specifically focused on growth. So those companies need to be at a point where they're ready to mainly focus on growth. Sure. So you know the founder plans to spend the next three to six months not raising a round, not building and launching more products, not hiring a huge engineering team, but scaling growth. You know, maybe hiring salespeople and generating leads for them, maybe building out a, a marketing organization and deploying ad spend. Mm. But it's like when startups are at the point where they can really focus on their growth, those are the companies that I like to look at specifically to work with here in London. And is that the stage you invest in, or is that the stage you bring them on the accelerator so at the end you can invest in? Uh, no, I invest at the beginning of my program. Okay, so it's pre-series A. Program. Yeah, okay. pre-series A, exactly. Uh, and then our program, we invest um, yeah, in the companies and then bring them into a three-month program where we work with them to scale their growth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so um, I think there's a lot of confusion in uh, young uh, entrepreneurs' minds as to how... Uh, VCs go about analyzing um, startups that they're going to invest in. Um, so if I can be particular, um, a, a conversation uh, some of my friends have had with me is uh, the case of numbers versus the human elements of investing. Um, I'm sensing this is a theme for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like the debate, so <laughs> it happens a lot. Um, so. Um, the, the background of uh, people outside of tech, they are very, very numbers focused. And uh, if you go into economics, it's obviously all focused on numbers and formulas and uh, proven data models. And so how much of that is applied to uh, investing and especially VC investing as opposed to the human elements? It's a constant debate. I think if you ask 10 VCs, you'd probably get 10 different takes on it mm -hmm. um, and we have our own strategy and our own style of investing but ultimately yeah you're looking at sort of the product and the business model you're looking at the size of the market and then you're looking at the founding team mm -hmm. and those are all those all have to be factors now if I could wave a magic wand and be omniscient and know everything about those things I'd probably weight the team I would unquestionably weight the team as the highest factor 
the human element, as you call it. Mm -hmm. um, because I've seen amazing founders make very mediocre businesses very big and successful. And I've, I've seen amazing businesses and amazing products just really go to crap because they have the wrong people running them. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, you get a deck, you spend an hour or two in, in pitch meetings and interviews, you can get something of a feel for people, mm -hmm. but you really don't know who they're going to become when, you know, suddenly they've got to raise a Series A, and suddenly, you know, they've got a $35 million Series B, and suddenly they have to manage a team of 400 employees, and suddenly someone's stealing from them, and they've got to try to fire that person, <laughs> and suddenly, you know, a competitor's copied all their IP, like, you know, th these are people who are going to go face situations, crazy situations they've never faced in their life. Mm. And you can't have a crystal ball and totally predict how they're going to fare in those situations. So you spend time with the people and you try to understand how they think and how they approach the world. And you look at what they've done in the past and how they've reacted in different situations and hope that that's a good predictor. But ultimately, that's the most nonlinear piece of investment decision making. Mm. I can look at a product and tell if it's crap. Yeah. <laughs> I can look at a market and tell if there aren't very many dollars in it. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's the most important piece, but it's, it's also the toughest one to evaluate. Yeah. And uh, how much or at all do you use data models or formulas or do you have spreadsheets where you pump in numbers of the market share and blah, 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 and come out with a number that you use to judge the investments? We use data a little bit in two places. So when I'm investing in companies, you know, these are very early stage, so maybe they've got 100,000 in revenue a year, you know, and they're looking at a $2 billion market. So there's no linear relationship between how the business looks now and how it would need to look. You know, I could try to multiply those numbers, you know, and come up with some sort of valuation or something, but the, the assumptions in it are so ridiculous. And I guess the other piece of data we've got is we've been investing in companies for five years now. And we have five years of historical data on 15, you know, up to now up to 1,500 companies that we can look back on. And so that even tells us, hey, these things that look like great investments five years ago, how are they doing now? And these things that we know are great investments now, how did they look five years ago? Mm -hmm. And that again reinforces the fact that whatever you're seeing at this early stage will change completely. So a lot of the companies that are our most successful investments now didn't necessarily seem like our best bets in the beginning. And a lot of companies that seem like great investments in the beginning, um, you know, haven't really panned out. So that, you know, that broad historical data makes me even more humble about the numbers I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, where the numbers are useful are to tell me, do customers really like this product? Will people pay for this? Once they start using it, do they keep using it? Do they tell their friends about it? Um, is the number of people who are using it growing? So I look a lot at sort of activity and usage rates, at month-over-month -month growth rates, at retention rates, at customer satisfaction numbers. Because even in small sample sizes and early days, uh, those can have a lot of predictive power, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to things like you know how many signups can you buy or what's your yeah. what's your revenue forecast. Yeah. Like that. Um, so it's very interesting that you've uh, been mapping the how the investments have gone on over the years. Um, what key trends have you spotted up from that? So yeah. are there things uh, you can see like five years ago, okay, we were investing in uh, things that were trendy at the time, like social networks or whatever was you know, the, the wave we were on. Um, 
yeah, what were the, are there any mistakes you can spot out that you guys were doing, say, five years ago that are obvious now? And do you have examples of those companies that, you know, you didn't necessarily have a lot of faith in and they did really well? Like, what was the one thing that kind of changed it for them? Hmm. There's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, I mean, Sorry. the truth is, I wasn't with 500 startups five years ago. These are probably really good questions to ask Dave McClure. Yeah. Because um, he's got the benefit of all of that hindsight. But um, I think what we've always tried to do is with sort of this hacker mentality of, you know, when you see a trend, try to arbitrage it, try to not do what's trending. Mm -hmm. So for example, I mean, a really simple example is in the Valley, you know, most people who raise VC money are tall white men. And mm -hmm. so, you know, in the Valley, so, you know, getting out of the Valley and being in 20 countries. Uh, I think 40% of the companies we've invested in have at least one female founder. So just going where the other VCs aren't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certain industries are super hot, tend to attract higher valuations. Well, why overpay for those when there's perfectly good startups and founders and opportunities in less popular industries? So, you know, wherever we can go and have kind of a distinct, just being global for us. I mean, it's, it's unusual for an early stage venture firm. Um, so wherever we see a trend, what we try to do is then cut across it and go the opposite way um, to try to find opportunities. Mm. Um, so one, I guess, one company that uh, that is, I think, a good example of what you were talking about. Uh, we've invested in a company called Tomatum, and they're a mobile games publisher based in Amman, Jordan. Okay. And you know, at the time, Dave McClure made the investment, and at the time, it was very early on in, the, in this company's life. I, I'm not sure they, their product was even live, but Dave spent some time with the founder, was impressed, and, and felt it would be a good investment. Uh, mobile games, in general, isn't hugely popular industry for, with investors because it's so home run driven, mm. and it's you know you really got to depend on having this genius who can keep coming up with the next Angry Birds. Yeah. Uh, and certainly the Middle East, you know, five years ago was not, you know, outside of like the petrochemical industry just wasn't really seen as, as a big growth region. So, you know, it was a contrarian bet in a lot of ways, but they've had a good hunch about them. So they were in our, my growth program in the Distro Dojo last year. And right now they're, they're doing phenomenally well. They have millions of monthly active users and something like 40% month on month growth in their business. Um, they're being approached by all kinds of investors and they're having phenomenal success. And there's no way, I, I really like Dave McClure and he's a brilliant man, but there's no way he could have predicted this mm. outcome. I mean, it was completely nonlinear. And at that point, you know, he was making a founder bet and hoping for the best. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I guess that's an example of, you know, one where we, we took a risk and it, it paid off really well. I think the important thing about our philosophy is we don't worry about being wrong. We don't, we don't worry about what mm. I call a type one error. We don't worry about a false positive. So we invest in a company and they go bankrupt. Well, guess what? That's half of the companies we invest in. Mm. At the end of the day, we don't worry about losing that money. Unlike every other branch of investing where you're really focused on preservation of capital. Yeah. Uh, here on the end of the bell curve, we know that a lot of companies are going to go out of business. We make our money on the, you know, the 1% to 10% of companies that are really successful that then return the value of the fund multiple times over and offset those losses. So. You know, I think it's about having you know, certainly good instincts about people, but then just being comfortable taking those risks. Oh. That was a yeah. lot of answers, but it was a lot of questions. Yeah, it was a lot of questions. That was good. That was good. Yes. That was it. Um, 
So in terms of like, okay, so you're over here in London now, making bets. Can you tell us? Can you give us like a like a rundown of a founder that you've met, uh, you guys have invested in, and basically what was that process like? How did they reach out <coughs> to you? How did they pitch? What did you like about their pitch? Um, and what led you to invest? You don't have to name names. You know. I will. Just give me a minute to think of a good example. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so here's a, actually an investment um, that I just did, and uh, it's actually an Israeli-based company uh, called Stormaven. Okay. So these guys, basically, what Stormaven does is it lets you A/B test App Store listing pages. So if you've got your app in Google Play and in, in iTunes, and maybe. 10% of the people who actually see the listing page are downloading it. You mm-hmm. obviously like to redesign the listing page so that can go up. iTunes Store won't let you do that, right? Mm-hmm. So these guys have come up with a way you can A-B test and even multivariate test those designs. Mm-hmm. So when I first met these guys, I really like them. Just you know, they're, they're both technical founders, so super smart and engaging. Um, second thing about them that I love is they built this product to scratch their own itch. So they'd started a previous company called Shaker. Uh, that was very successful in a mobile app, you know, early days. And the biggest frustration, they could track traffic, you know, once they got it to the app store. And then once people installed it, they could track all their behavior in between. But there was this real blind spot. Mm. So they built this product first just for themselves so they could optimize their own funnel. Scratching their own itch, they were their own customer, which means they have a very good sense for what their customers like. Yeah. Um, so I really like that. Then what I found is, you know, they, they were having no trouble selling this product at all. Most of the pitches they go into, they seem to be winning. And people were, were happy to talk to them, happy to give them money. Because their customers are spending so much money on advertising. You know, if you spend, what, 100000 a month on advertising, and you can boost the conversion rates on that advertising by, well, 25%, you know, then you've just, you know, saved yourself twenty dollars $25,000 in yeah. ad budget. So you don't mind giving a little bit of that. Yeah. to the A-B testing company. So it's kind of a, you're having no problem closing sales. So, you know, obviously this is a, a perfect storm. So I was yeah. really happy to get a chance to invest in these guys' product. And what we're working with them now is, you know, they've run so many tests, they have 50 million impressions across a gazillion multivariate tests in all sorts of different industries. They've learned a few things about how to make a great app store listing page. Mm. And nobody else on earth has that data. So what we're trying to do is just help them get the word out what they've learned. So they've started to create blog entries and presentations yeah. just to get it out there for free to all the mobile app developers in the world to help them get better designing their listing pages, uh, which could, you know, potentially downstream for people who do want to pay to optimize, you know, it could be a future source of customers for them. But even just the content itself is so valuable to the industry. Um, so that's a team that I'm, and they're just, they're smart guys and they're, they're good fun to work with. So. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no, really yeah. good. Tell, tell us more about the actual guys, so them as people. Um, so you said they're both technical founders. Um, other people you invest in, do you invest in teams which uh, aren't technically strong yet, but they are looking to get you know, a stronger uh, technical founder in? Um, are they analytical, the two guys? Um, and do you invest in people who are more kind of shoot from the from the gut? Um, yeah, t- tell us more about the type of people. That you okay. This is, and I'm sorry that this sounds like dodging the question. I can't give you a single answer. I'm looking for this person. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> specifically. He's like a couple of He's a bit taller. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> taller, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, it, it's sort of back to the point I was making about management and leadership. So if someone's got decided to forego salary or sleep or a social life, you know, and build something with their own two hands and try to stand up a company, they're obviously very passionate about a goal, and there's also some work they probably really love doing. Mm -hmm. So I look at this and I say, what is the work that needs to happen for this company to be successful, and are these the right people who can do that work? So to give you an example to hit your question about technical very specifically, um, you know, I recently invested in an e-commerce company, um, and you know, e-commerce technologically isn't magic. You know, they can do everything technologically they need to with uh, you know, third-party contract developers and off-the-shelf existing software, sure. open source stuff. So they don't need to be technological geniuses, and they're not, and that's fine. If that same team tried to start a machine learning company, you know, I, I wouldn't have five minutes. <laughs> um, you know, but what that team does have is really good fashion sense, they're really in touch with the buying habits, behavioral instincts uh, for shopping of millennials. Uh, they have a really good sense for quantitative online marketing, how to drive audiences, you know, at, at favorable costs, how to do mobile engagement. So, hmm. so really, it's just a question of matching the founder's skills and passions with the work that the company needs to do. And when you rack up their skills and passions, uh, is that done primarily on the chat you have with them there and there? Is it done by the work they've done in the product, in creating the product so far? Or is it done in with their history of things they've done before if they worked in large companies before? Yes, exactly. Before. It's all that stuff. Okay, all of it put together. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people generally are going to do what, going to have done what they want to do. Uh -huh. um, so you look at what they've done, understand why they made the decisions they did, um, what mistakes they made, what they learned from those mistakes, um, what, what they love doing every day. Uh, yeah. I mean, the most important decisions that founders make every day are how they and their teams are going to spend their time. Because mm -hmm. you know, they've got a certain amount of money, and that certain amount of money equals a certain amount of time, which means there's a certain amount of stuff you can try yeah. is going to work or not. Mm. If you try the right stuff, great. If you try the wrong stuff, you're dead. So therefore, that's the most important decision. Yeah. And people are going to generally get out of bed in the morning and, and do the stuff they're most interested in and the stuff they want to do. So that's got to be the stuff. Mm. You know, the risk of oversimplifying this that's going to make their companies successful. Gotcha. Answer my question. Very good. So, wrapping up now. Yeah. If you could pick three qualities from successful people around the world, what would they be and why? Three qualities from successful people around the world. You know, there's, there's one I just don't think people talk about very much, because um, there's no getting around it, is they tend to be extremely intelligent. Um, I mean, especially you know, in in business, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, there's just there's no getting around it. Like there's something to being able to outthink your opponent. Two is they're able to leverage the power of others. They're able to to build and manage highly engaged, passionate, focused teams. Because you know, if you can do one X and you can hire ten people, then you can do ten X. Um, so it's massively leveraged. Um, and three is, is back to that earlier point about leadership. I think really successful people have a vision mm. of, of a future state. You know, and there's of course extreme examples, you know, like Elon Musk sees a world where, you know, nobody uses any carbon fuel and, and when the earth is no longer sustainable, we all just get in his rockets and fly to our next yeah. planet. <laughs> um, and you know, and he's deadly serious about that. Uh, so that's the extreme example. But yeah, people who, 
who understand a, a domain and have a vision of a, a future and, and want to drag, have no, feel no choice but to drag the world towards it. Mm. Mm. And mm. for those three qualities, do you think, like, how would you go about developing those? So for yourself, how would, uh, do you have a kind of idea or have you actually thought through how you're going to develop these in yourself in the coming years? <laughs> or how would you advise other people to do it? Well, so first I will say, because it, it seems a little counterintuitive, like if you're not intelligent, can you develop that? But absolutely. I mean, you're into physical training, and, and the brain's just a muscle. Like, the more you use it, the stronger it gets. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Um, but generally, in, in, from a philosophical standpoint, I believe that people should work on accentuating things that they're already good at and already love doing and not worry about showing up weaknesses. And that's where it comes to building a team. So know what you're great at, know what you're not great at but your organization needs and find people who are great at that so if you're not an outside person if you're introverted bring in a public face you know bring in someone who can be your sales and business development if you're a brilliant creative who's constantly changing her mind and wanting to go a different direction okay well then hire someone who's highly organized and has followed through and is going to force you yeah. to make good prioritization decisions and stay focused so you don't jerk the whole team around. Mm -hmm. So know thyself well enough to complement yourself with amazing people who, who have the strengths that you lack. Know thyself. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> I, I, someone else made that up, I'm sure. <laughs> know thyself. Even somebody British. Yeah. Oh, so, um, Let's, uh, the, the only thing left was that one yeah. question we, we left uh, when you were thinking of uh, ah. the one challenging time you had at PayPal where you led your team out of something that looked <laughs> difficult. Of a difficult situation. Yeah. All right, one, I think that's a, a good example of how to think about growth. Uh, we had launched a new product, it was a payment processing system, and people needed to integrate it. It was sort of like Stripe only a long time before Stripe. People need to integrate it with their website and get up and running. And we launched it and, and not enough people were using it. So we started researching and okay, make the API documentation simpler, link to it after they sign up, give them instructions for how to integrate, give them a phone number that they can call uh, if they need help. And eventually we got more and more people using it, but eventually we hit a ceiling and no matter how many more people were signing up, we just couldn't get more people to actually use it. Mm -hmm. So we started calling the people who weren't using it. And what they said was, well, my business isn't live yet. And we realized a lot of the people who weren't integrating and processing payments weren't doing it because they didn't have customers. Mm. And we couldn't market our way out of that. So then we changed our goal. Our metric had been what percent of signups use the product. Instead, we said, what percent of the addressable revenue are we getting? So when people sign up, do they have a big successful business already? All right, let's focus our time on that small number of customers and make sure we help them grow. And that, you know, we left, you know, the number of, act of activations each week, each month wasn't changing, but the revenue was going up because we were really focusing ah. on the most successful customers. Yeah. So I think that's a, a case where choosing the right success metric yeah. drives everything else. And that's why I focus so much on, on choosing the right metric when I'm helping businesses grow. Yeah, yeah. sense. Good example. I'm glad, I'm glad we came back to yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I think that is a great way to end the show. Yeah. This was great Brilliant. fun. Thank this you guys was, yeah. so much. Hope Matt's focus on leadership has inspired everyone to up their management game. To summarize, the main takeaways are The secret to being a great manager is hiring people better than you are. Get the right people on the bus first and let that decide where the bus goes. 2. The most effective way to guide a business is by using human insight to find a core that connects with people. And once you have that, 
track performance numbers to guide the way. And three, create a list of skills your team needs to hit your targeted results. If you don't have the required skills, find people who do and bring them in. The respective strengths of the founding team plays a huge part in investment decisions. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next week.